Good evening, everyone. I'm Judy Cooper, the uh, coordinator of public programs here at the Pratt, and just delighted to see you all here, and we welcome you to this evening's program with Rebecca Bowling and Uta Larkey. Um, tonight's event is one of the Shapiro Lecture Series. It's an ongoing series that was funded by a bequest from Mrs. Gloria L. Shapiro. Before I introduce our speakers, I'd like to take a, a minute to tell you about uh, a couple of events that are coming up next month. On Thursday, March 1st, Dr. James Cohn, who is professor of theology at Union Theological Seminary in New York, um, he will be here at the Central Library talking about his new book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree. And the following Thursday, on March 8th, we'll be hosting MSNBC's Chris Matthews. Uh, and he's going to be talking, talking about his best-selling book, Jack Kennedy, um, Elusive Hero. You'll find information about these programs and all of the other events um, coming up in the next two months out on the table there in the hallway. Uh, I'd like to acknowledge and thank the sign language interpreters from the Hearing and Speech Agency and also let you know that um, Scott Davies from Barnes & Noble, the power plant, is uh, out in the hallway and he has the author's book for sale and they'll be, um, we hope that you'll pick up a copy on your way out and they will be signing books following the program. <clears throat> uh, in this new book, Life, and loss in the shadow of the Holocaust. Rebecca Bowling and Uta Larkey tell the story of the Kaufman-Steinberg family before, during, and after the Holocaust. They use letters from eight members of the family across two generations, and they show the dilemma that um, Jews in, in, in Nazi Germany faced uh, as they tried to decide whether or not to Emigrate. Rebecca Bowling is professor of history at University of Maryland, Baltimore County, UMBC, and Uda Larkey is associate professor. Did I say German? Associate. Professor of history at UMBC, and Uda Larkey is associate professor of German at Goucher College. So please join me in welcoming them here to the press. <laughs> well, I'd like to first thank Judy Cooper and Scott Davies um, for being here, Judy Cooper from the Pratt and, and Scott Davies from the Barnes & Noble Power Plant. Um, I think maybe as a quick way to get started, as we just look at the cover of the book um, to engage you perhaps a little bit, um, I'd like to just tell you who's who. Um, and. These are pictures, portrait pictures of the family members that we're going to primarily focus on and that are, of course, the primary figures in the book. Um, the first is Selma, and can you hear me okay? The first is Selma, um, and then next to her is her younger sister, Henny, and then the three children of Selma and her husband, Alex, who we'll talk about in a minute, um, but who, who died in 1933. So, um, it, to a large extent, um, the two women raised these 
three children who are, of course, already young adults at this point. So the next is Court, um, the eldest of the children, the son, and then his sister Lottie, and then next to her, Mariana or Nana, as the family um, called her at the time. So that's just to let, give you a face to engage with for a moment. Mariana Steinberg Ostran, or Mariana, as those close to her called her, often talked to her children as they were growing up in New Jersey about her happy memories of her youth and young adult life in the 1920s and early 30s in Germany. Especially when she brought out old family photograph albums, she would reminisce and tell stories about the good times she had, swimming, dancing, and playing tennis, often with her older siblings. Kurt and Lottie, and their mostly non-Jewish friends. She described how her family had celebrated Jewish holidays with neighbors from down the street in Essen, outside Essen in Northwest Germany. She always reminded her own children, Tom and Sue, of the birthdays of her mother, their grandmother, Selma, and her beloved aunt, Tante Henny. Mariana and her siblings had come to think of these two women, Selma and Henny, collectively as their parents. Mariana, Court, and Lottie did have a loving father, Alex Steinberg, but he had become seriously ill with the Spanish flu in the aftermath of the First World War before the children were even teenagers. Now, how many of you have been watching Downton Abbey? Okay, a few of you. And of course, recently they covered the Spanish flu and that's why people moved into convalescence in the house. Okay, so you, you've now heard of the Spanish flu. It was in fact a very real event. So, but before the children were even teenagers, their father came down with the Spanish flu. Mariana only occasionally talked to her children about what life had been like for her and her family under the Nazis. Mariana's children, although curious, sensed it was best not to ask too many questions. In 2002, to bring you up closer to the present, Mariana's by then adult daughter, Sue, or Dr. Suzanne Ostron Rosenberg, my biology department colleague at UMBC, found some 200 World War II family letters, mostly addressed to her mother and neatly bundled up in her parents' house in Columbia, Maryland. By then, Sue's mother, Mariana, was 91. This just gives you a sense, whoops, of the family tree, so. And so ridden with Alzheimer's disease that she could provide no answers to the many questions that Sue had about the letters. Sue's father, Arnold Ostrand, also a Jewish emigre from Germany, knew vaguely that his wife, Mariana, had saved letters, but he had no idea of the volume. Sue recognized the names of most of the writers of the letters, including her grandmother, Selma, and Selma's younger sister, Henny. These two sisters had lived together almost their entire lives, except for several years when they and their eight siblings were orphaned and sent to live with various relatives across the region of the Rhineland. Sue also recognized the occasional note from her mother's uncle, Uncle Hermann, whose first World War German blanket had been passed down to her. 
Most of the letters were in German and were handwritten. But during the Second World War, German language letters could provoke censors and cause even more delays in mail delivery. So during World War II, the siblings, who had managed to emigrate to the US and Palestine, often typed letters to each other in a rather awkward English so that they would get through faster. Sue had a difficult time deciphering the handwriting or recalling enough of her college German studies to read most of the German letters. Wondering what to do with the letters, just to give you a sense of what the handwriting looked like, Sue was directed by colleagues to me, the German historian at UMBC. I, in turn, connected Sue with my historical studies graduate student, Deborah Gale, a trained archivist who carefully organized the 200 wartime letters and on the basis of the 40 letters in English, which Deborah was able to read, and additional research and conversation she had with Sue, Deborah wrote a brief narrative about Sue's mother. Sue then shared this brief narrative with her first cousins, the children of her mother's deceased siblings, Lottie and Court. Sue's cousins, now living in Israel and Chile, also wanted to know more, particularly about the German letters and those written to and from the older generation in Germany. Getting this brief taste of their family's history provoked a flurry of activity among the cousins across three continents. Old boxes in various closets and storage rooms were opened and sorted through. Sue's successive discoveries brought together a collection of over 450 family letters her mother had saved. Sue's cousins found and sent Sue copies of over 100 more related letters that their parents, Court and Lottie, had saved before and during the Second World War. When the family approached me and I contacted my German studies colleague at nearby Goucher College, Uta Larki, about writing a history of this Kaufmann-Steinberg family in the 1930s and 40s, we quickly grasped how remarkable it was that this collection of over 600 letters included Mariana's letters to her mother and aunt in Germany, letters that typically did not survive the war. Wanting a record for herself of what she had sent, especially since postal delays were notoriously long during the war, Mariana had made carbon copies of her own wartime letters. She had also saved two of her diaries. The pre-war and wartime letters between Mariana and her siblings, Kurt and Lottie, and their mother and aunt, provide an unusual glimpse into family dynamics in the midst of persecution, emigration, and rescue attempts. The texture and content of the hundreds of letters, written mostly in German, tell a complex and layered story of loving but painful family relations. The history of the Kaufmann-Steinberg family defies simplistic tropes about German Jews in the 20th century. The family was assimilated and attended a reform synagogue, but the women in the synagogue voted to retain separate sex seating when the new building was constructed on the eve of World War I. The Kaufmann-Steinbergs considered themselves observant. They walked over three miles home from Friday night services in their down, to their downtown Essen synagogue in observance of the Sabbath or Shabbat, 
And yet first thing Saturday morning, which was of course still Shabbat, they opened their store in Auden Essen for business. So this is just to give you a sense of some of the complexities and sort of one could say contradictions, but let's say complexities. They kept what they called kosher, cooking meat in salt water when they were unable to acquire it from a kosher butcher, since there were none in their little town, a town with only a few other Jewish families. Yet they ate sliced ham, not considering it really pork, which otherwise they avoided completely. The friends of the children, Mariana, Lotti, and Court, were mostly non-Jews and were frequent guests in each other's homes, even at mealtime. Now, when we think about the sort of the traditional stories about German Jews in the 20th century, the general storyline, if you will, is that people could be friends publicly, but they were rarely invited into each other's homes. And yet we found in this particular family, it's really not like that. The two Kaufman sisters, Selma and Henny, founded one of the first female-owned businesses in metropolitan Essen in the early 1900s. And in the picture, um, this is Selma holding the hands of Lottie and Court, and then Henny next to her, and then these are two um, of the saleswomen that worked with them in front of their store. You can see up at the top, it's a little bit cut off, but Kaufman. After World War I, these two women managed to raise two daughters and a son and have them educated during the Depression as a doctor, a dentist, and a lawyer, respectively. Selma's husband, Alex, never recovered from the Spanish flu, dying just after the Nazis came to power in 1933. This evening, we'd like to give you a taste of both the content and texture of this correspondence and the diaries in the 1930s and to some extent the early 1940s. Almost two years before the Nazis came to power, but in the midst of the depression, with the family no longer able to afford in-home nursing care for Alex, Selma wrote to her two daughters, who were both away at university, quote, father is doing very poorly again at the moment. It's a harsh fate which has been meted out to him and which affects all of us. But enjoy your youth as long as you can and to the extent our modest circumstances allow. The seriousness and bitterness of life comes early enough. Now this is written on the eve of the Nazis coming to power. On the eve of the Nazis coming to power, political unrest further complicated the confines of the family's home and the sister's store in Auten Essen. Directly next door to them, the Steinberg Kaufmann family had new neighbors. The local Auten Essen branch of the Nazi party had moved into their new headquarters next door. So you can't, I don't know if you recognize before when I showed you the store that there was a, um, it's actually a grocery store next door, Tingoman, um, and they, they of course have um, the curtains pulled out so you can't see, but they were next door. But this is after the store has already been shut down. But it gives you a sense, and this is, of course, a parade going down the street. And you can tell from the windows what was right next door. The professional and personal hopes and dreams of many young Germans were shaken, if not shattered already within months of the Nazis coming to power in 1933. The factors that would increasingly convince younger Jews in particular that they could not remain in Germany 
usually involved professional and economic roadblocks, which multiplied steadily from the spring of 1933 onward. This was certainly the case for Mariana, a medical student at the time the Nazis came to power, Lottie, a freshly minted dentist, and Court, a young lawyer, unable to get work except for within the Jewish community. Already in June of 1933, Mariana, at age 22, expressed relief that her father had just died because, as she put it, the current political situation overshadows everything else. Father's passing came at just the right time. He is now spared both further suffering and these times." End of quote. Mariana reacted to the new regime and what it seemed to hold for her own fate and that of other Jews in the diary that she had kept since she was a teenager. So this is from her diary. So much, seemingly without end, has happened in these last four months. We had the election of March 5th, shortly after the Reichstag fire, which brought the confirmation of Hitler as chancellor and his national uprising. The consequences? Germany's awakening, the persecution of Marxists and Jews. As to my own personal fate, my studies and my life up to now, that will be determined by the fate of German Jewry, in particular of the young and coming generation. Our right to live and to earn a living has been denied in this new Germany. Can one even say Jewish student today? If under German university student, one includes all the rights and obligations that the term student implies, then my expression Jewish student no longer is correct. Because here in Germany, our rights and duties have been taken away. We no longer belong to the German student body. According to the Führer stipulation, we can only take our seats after the Aryans have found their places. Mariana also worried about the future of her family. Younger Jews, not yet established in professions or settled down with their own families, were more likely to explore immigration options sooner. Lottie, Mariana's older sister, and she's off on the end, with of course Henny and Selma next to her, and then as we'll see, her very new husband, Hans. Lottie, Mariana's older sister, who was unable to practice dentistry, married in mid-1935 at the age of 26, and emigrated with her Zionist husband, Hans Kaiserblut, to Palestine, a few months after the Nuremberg Laws were put into effect. The Nuremberg Laws denied Jews German citizenship, placed concrete restrictions on all Jews and on interactions between Jews and so-called Aryans for professional and economic reasons. Although the Nuremberg Laws came as an insult to German Jews, many imagined that such measures would not last. The notion of being able to hold out seemed to characterize, at least until 1938, the perspective of most members of the older generation of German Jews, including Henny, Selma, Uncle Hermann, and Lottie's in-laws, the Kaiserbluts. Julius Kaiserblut, Lottie's father-in-law, was typical of older wealthy Jews who were convinced they would be able to hold out during what they saw as temporary Nazi discrimination against certain Jews, presumably Jews other than themselves. In the summer of 1936, Lottie overheard her still prosperous father-in-law, Julius, comment to another German Jew who had abandoned his big department store in Berlin in order to emigrate to Palestine that, quote, he, Julius, 
would not be able to sleep at night if his money were outside of Germany. Even in 1938, after the Nazis had forced the Kaiserblutz to sell their factory in Cologne, and just after the November pogrom had occurred, Lottie's in-laws did not consider immigration. A perplexed Lottie lamented, we just do not understand the attitude of Hans's parents. I am afraid that they still do not grasp the severity of the situation. And Father Julius still thinks that he invests wisely when he gives his money to Herr Hitler. It's a pretty tough quote. When I tell you today, with the hindsight that we have, that Selma went to Palestine in 1937 to visit her daughter Lottie and her son-in-law Hans, with absolutely no intention of staying or of using the trip to explore the possibility of possible immigration from Germany and then return to Germany, we shake our heads. Selma's children in their 20s and early 30s in 1937, whether in Palestine like Lottie or Kurt and Mariana still in Germany at the time, did not feel that their loved ones or they themselves were in any serious immediate danger however disadvantaged and confronted by closed professional and social doors they found themselves. This, of course, began to change in mid-1938 as new decrees accelerated the elimination of Jews from the German economy, and as Jews who had German names were forced to adopt the middle names of Israel for men and Sarah for women in order to help the Nazi regime identify and segregate Jews more easily. Having lost their citizenship rights already in 1935 with the Nuremberg Laws and their business not long thereafter, now another part of their identity was under siege. It was at this point that Selma and Henny, now in their 60s, realized it was time for their youngest, Mariana, to find a better homeland where she, like her older sister Lottie, could work in her profession and have political rights and access to economic mobility. Fortunately, Mariana was able in mid-1938 to get a visa to the U.S. Selma and Henny wrote Mariana on the 21st of June, 1938, only hours after she had said goodbye to them in Essen. They wanted her to have letters waiting for her on the ship, which departed from Rotterdam in the Netherlands. The advice, well wishes, and blessings they sent her indicate the panoply of emotions Selma and Henny felt as their children scattered across continents. In this parting letter, Selma told her youngest child, quote, take these words to escort you in your new life, in another part of the world. All the best for you, my dear courageous creature. A good journey, safe crossing, and a wonderful free life with fulfilling work in your profession. My thoughts are totally with you, my dear one. In a prayer that she described as her maternal blessing, Selma asked the Eternal One to bless and watch over her daughter, to show her the way and to give her peace. Aunt Henny was too overwrought to write much beyond wishing Mariana a safe journey and a happy life. She closed her letter to Mariana with, and all the rest would have to be said without words, and then signed off tenderly. 
On the 1st of September, 1938, just a month after Mariana's emigration, Mariana's brother, Court, the only one of the three children left in Germany, registered himself for emigration to the US as well. By then, many people were in line ahead of him. But he was not overly concerned because he was not yet ready to leave, not wanting to leave his beloved mother, aunt, and uncle alone in Germany, but also wanting to have options, just in case, as he put it at the time. Then, some seven weeks later, Selma traveled to the US consulate in Stuttgart and registered herself, her arthritis-ridden sister, Henny, and her brother-in-law, Uncle Hermann, also for immigration to the United States. When Selma applied for the visas to the US in the fall of 1938, even though this was only seven weeks after her son had, their registration numbers were so high that they were unlikely to be able to emigrate for several years. Once their numbers came up, they would need to provide affidavits from financial sponsors in the US who could vouch for their economic well-being once they did immigrate. The prospect for Jews, especially older Jews, who had limited access to material means abroad or to employment in a new country with a different language and a different culture were slim indeed. Selma, however, had faith that her children would somehow save sufficient funds or find sponsors by that time, several years in the future, who could provide affidavits. Lottie and Mariana in their new homelands certainly wanted and expected that they would all eventually be reunited. But in October 1938, none of the children felt that there was any urgent need to focus their efforts on getting their old folks out of Germany. Proceeds from the family's successful property sales in the early fall of 1938 and the relative calm in Germany and the recent avoidance of war with the Munich Conference created the illusion of a relatively secure holding pattern in which Selma, Henny, and Uncle Hermann would be safe to wait in Germany until the children could get fully settled and adjusted to their new lives. I'll turn this over to my colleague. So I just want to take you back for one moment to uh, October uh, 1938. As we just heard, that uh, court had registered himself at the beginning of September, for September 1st, for uh, emigration to the U.S. And uh, then on October 20th, um, Selma registered uh, herself, Uncle Hermann and Henny. Now, in those six weeks, I just want you to realize that there were 12,000 more applicants that registered with the U.S. consulate. So in those six weeks, it was more than 12,000 people trying to get just a registration number to immigrate to the United States. So that is how dire the situation at this point was. So when we talk about high registration numbers, that is what it means. Um, that the prospect uh, to immigration, uh, to emigrate to the United States, were getting slimmer and slimmer and slimmer. And 12,000 people in six weeks, you can imagine what that meant. So, uh, Court, again, he was not ready to leave, but he had registered himself. Um, and uh, his uh, just to recap, his sisters are now in the U.S. and in Palestine, respectively. 
just a few weeks later, uh, after um, Hannah, after Selma and Haney registered for immigration, uh, the November pogrom uh, was unleashed by the Nazis in uh, Germany. So on the right, you see the burning synagogue in the town of Essen, where Selma and Henny lived at the time. And on the left, you see the burning synagogue uh, in Frankfurt, where Kurt uh, lived and worked at the time. So you, I'm sure you're all familiar with, uh, with the November pogrom or Kristallnacht or Night of the Broken Glass, as it is known. Um, I cannot really go into the uh, historical uh, background to that, but uh, just uh, suffice to say um, that in the hindsight, in I think I need it a little like that. Is this better? Okay. Um, so uh, the November pogrom was staged by the Nazi government, as we know, and. Uh, as one of the results, uh, we have burning synagogues, and uh, they're also smashed in uh, shop windows all throughout Germany and Austria that was recently annexed by Nazi Germany. And uh, 30,000 Jewish men who were arrested and sent to the three concentration camps that existed at the time. In Essen, the right would give you a picture of that, um, Selma, Henny, and Onkel Hermann found refuge with a Gentile family friend. Her name was Hertha Pott. Kurt's girlfriend, Hannah Levy, worked in the Jewish Youth Center at the time. So this was the Youth Center in, es in Essen. It was, um, the architect was Eric Mendelssohn, and uh, that also, of course, was a Jewish architect, and the, uh, uh, this youth center was attacked. Um, and Hannah made a very dramatic and traumatic escape that night from the Jewish uh, youth center. And you can read her report in our book. It is really absolutely astounding the way she, in hindsight, then narrates uh, her uh, atrocious uh, mourning there. Uh, the, this youth, youth center was attacked at five or at six in the morning. And uh, so Hannah gives a very, very detailed account of her escape. And it was her, not only her, way, her uh, place of work, but also of residence. So she uh, stayed there overnight and uh, had to endure um, the smashed in windows and uh, the Nazis coming with crowbars there. In Frankfurt, uh, Court had heard rumors of impending arrests. So he had worked for the Jewish uh, Association, the Central Association for Jews in Germany. And uh, then on the, in the morning of the 11th, uh, November 11th, uh, there was a rumor um, saying it is safe to come out. And this rumor was based on a radio address by Himmler that uh, the Nazis would not have any more would not arrest any more uh, men, which was misinformation. And um, <clears throat> and Kurt and uh, his colleague with whom he had hidden in a garage actually came out of hiding and were arrested on the spot. 
And we don't have court's uh, eyewitness account, but we have other eyewitness accounts of the, what happened to the Jews in Frankfurt that were arrested that, uh, either that night or the morning. Um, and uh, they were brought to something called the exhibition hall, and they, where they had to endure the most inhumane treatment, intimidation, violence, and cruelty. Julius Meyer, who was one of the eyewitnesses, described uh, his stay there. And we can assume that court endured something very similar. Quote, there were masses of people who came to watch the spectacle, screaming at us. We left the bus quickly and ran through the underpass up to a platform. So that was at the train station in Frankfurt. We were the lucky ones. The inmates behind us were not only yelled at, several girls, women, and also men beat the defenseless, beat the defenseless with sticks, umbrellas, and heavy objects. But that torment also passed, and we were boarded onto a train that took us to the northeast. We knew then, then we would probably end up in a camp near Weimar. End of quote. So at this time, just to remind you, there were three concentration camps already established, uh, Buchenwald, Dachau, and Sachsenhausen. And the camp near uh, Weimar, where a court also was brought, was the concentration camp Buchenwald. This is a picture of a newly arrived uh, arrested man, and it is quite likely that uh, court could be one of them. You see, um, that is uh, in November, December maybe, and uh, those people were just really basically arrested from their homes or from their places of work. In Buchenwald alone, there were 10,000 Jewish men that they were incarcerated following the November pogrom. And they did not receive prison uniforms. They wore their, their private clothes during in, their entire stay. They also were housed in something called uh, the special camp or Sonderlager, uh, which was just uh, were barracks that were not even built yet. They were not completed yet. And uh, that was next to the main camp. And in this week of murder, as it was called, November 10th to 14th, in Buchenwald alone, 227 prisoners died or were murdered. Court was released from the hell of Buchenwald after about three weeks on account of a fabricated letter from the Jewish agricultural organization assuring him his imminent immigration to Argentina. At this time, again, this would be November, maybe December 1938, Jewish organizations provided occasionally fabricated letters and false papers to get prisoners released from the concentration camps. Court was in bad shape after his release. He had to sign a statement that he will never talk about his experiences in Buchenwald, and that he will be out of Germany by December 31st, 1938, which did not give him much time. And now a very difficult time began. 
while Kurt was released, he lives in, lived in Buchenwald, he had to report to the Gestapo, to the secret police, once a week. And he also had to find out a way out of Germany, because Argentina was no option since the, the letter was fabricated. There was no visa for him. The German authorities, well aware of the fact that it was extremely difficult, if not impossible, for those arrested during the pogrom to get all the formalities in order in such a short time, used methods of intimidation and harassment to increase the pressure for emigration. Time constraints and long lines at every office, notwithstanding, the released prisoners also had a report to the Gestapo or the, to the police. Because the letter that got him out, out of Buchenwald was uh, fabricated, um, Kurt actually was not part of the scheduled group to leave for Argentina on December 10th, as the letter had stated. Since Kurt's registration number for emigration to the US was too high, he tried to get to Holland, to Great Britain, to Argentina without success. Only when Hans Jacobi, the director of an immigration uh, counseling office for the, of the Jewish Self-Help Association, the Hilfsverein in Cologne, intervened on Kurt's behalf, did then finally uh, he received help from the British consul in Cologne. After Kurt revealed to the consul the horrors he had endured in Buchenwald, the consul issued one of the last tourist visas to Palestine for Kurt and Hannah, provided that they marry. And they did marry um, on sh very short notice on uh, January 15th, 1939. And they were married by uh, Rabbi uh, Hugo Hahn, who actually was able to leave uh, Germany and who was a rabbi in uh, New York. And many people in New York uh, still know him and we know people who was rabbi, it was in New York. So after their joyous wedding, Kurt and Hannah left Essen with heavy hearts, yet optimistic that they would soon be followed by and re reunited with Selma, Henny, and Onkel Hermann. So here are the two uh, couples uh, in Tel Aviv. After her arrival in Palestine, Lottie had built up a successful dental practice in Tel Aviv. She was elated when Kurt and Hannah finally arrived in Palestine and supported them as much as she could. When Kurt and Hannah arrived, she was not, not only the only breadwinner in her family, since Hans didn't have a job and his business was doing, not doing well, but she was also pregnant with her first child. But nevertheless, the siblings and their spouses tried to pursue Selma and Henny's immigration to Palestine. But that proved to be more difficult than anticipated primarily due to the white paper, which drastically limited Jewish immigration after the spring of 1939. So the, uh, Jewish, uh, the British white paper st stated that Jewish immigration will be uh, reduced and drastically uh, limited in, for the next five years, meaning from 39 to um, 1944. And of course, that would be the crucial time of uh, the refugee crisis uh, in Europe when people really needed to get out. But that is where in Palestine the, um, it was limited. 
After the outbreak of World War II in September 1939, a few months later, the only chance for Selma and Henny's emigration was the US. So Palestine being a British mandate uh, and Britain and Great Britain and uh, Germany being at war with each other after September 3rd, there was no chance for the older folks to emigrate to Palestine. So you, the US remained the, the only hope after that. In anticipation of their emigration, Selma and Henny had their passport pictures taken, and they also, in their mid-60s, began to learn English. Mayanne, in the US, tried what she could to secure affidavits, and that is a letter that Selma had sent uh, to her children or to Mayanne in the US begging to get her out of, uh, and her and Henny out of uh, Nazi Germany. On October 3rd, 1941, Selma urged her daughter to consider an interim stay for herself, just for Selma, in Cuba, very carefully alluding to the fiasco two years ago. That was the fateful voyage of the St. Louis. Among, so if you don't know, that was a steamship uh, that was not allowed to uh, disembark in uh, Cuba, then it went to Florida, and uh, the passengers were not allowed uh, to disembark there, and then were turned away to go uh, back to Europe. And many of uh, the passengers then uh, landed, you know, were deported to concentration camps later. So, the family knew about the St. Louis, and actually they knew two people who were on the St. Louis. So when Cuba became the only option for an interim stay, uh, that was really uh, looked at with uh, trepidations, because Cuba did not really sound like a good option at the point. But it was the only one. The war-related disruptions of postal connections, first between Palestine and Germany, and after no December 1941 between the US and Germany, along with the restrictions on length and frequency of letters, made an already difficult situation unbearable. After everything was arranged for Selma's departure from Germany to Cuba, including a passport with a jo Cuban visa and a ship passage booked for Janu January 4th from Lisbon to Cuba, the only thing was a missing detail, and this was the exit visa. What everybody had hoped would be a delay of a few days turned out to be the end of all Jewish emigration from Germany for the duration of the war in October 1941. Once Germany declared war on the US, the family members were barely able to communicate with each other, save for an occasional Red Cross letter that allowed a maximum, maximum word count of 25 words. Selma and her two sisters, Henny, and a sister we have not heard of yet, her name was Emma, they were forced to move to a holding camp outside Munich, outside Cologne. So this letter was uh, written when uh, Selma and Henny and Emma lived already in a so-called Jew house, so that there were no ghettos in Germany proper, but there were concentrated ways uh, that Jews really had to 
live in very small apartment and uh, you know cramped in apartments or in, in so-called uh, Jew houses. Now this was the next step. Uh, that was a holding camp outside Cologne, and the conditions there were atrocious. And Selma managed to send a postcard to the Gentile family friend, Hertha Port. And this is the postcard. The translation. My dear Hertha, I quickly want to bid you farewell. Our trip will begin tomorrow morning apparently to Theresienstadt. Stay healthy and think of us. If you write Nana or Lottie via the Red Cross, please give them our heartfelt greetings, our warmest wishes to you and also to your parents. At this point, uh, Theresienstadt was not known as what we have come to know now as a ghetto slash concentration camp. Um, it really was considered a relative benign place to be for older people. That is what Court had heard. So Court did find out that uh, Selma and uh, Henny and Emma went to the Reich Ghetto of the Aged, as it was called. But he thought and wrote to his sister, that is a relative benign place, quote, end of quote. And they did not have any further information about the whereabouts of their mother and aunts until after the war. This is a German-Jewish paper, the Aufbau, that is still published. Uh, the first one came out in 1934. Here we have an ad uh, from March 1st, 1946, where the children are looking, Marianne and Court are looking uh, for Selma Steinberg and Emma Kaufmann. At this point, they thought that De Henny had died a natural death, which was not true. And uh, so that was their uh, search, ad, and they never heard any news. A year later, uh, they put what, something in the in, they put something in the alphabet that you can read in, in the book what it was. Um, and so that was a major means of communication amongst the Jewish uh, community, especially from Germany, was the Aufbau. And um, this is what you've seen on the book cover. You saw a tiny, tiny, tiny piece of it. And this is a piece of artwork by Kurt's son, Kurt's son Gidin Seller. Gidin is a photographer in Tel Aviv, and uh, he made this uh, artwork at, in three pieces with his uh, mother's and aunt's writing. And so when I visited there in 2010, I thought this ought to be the book cover. And uh, yeah, I could tell you more, but uh, I don't have the time. Um, I would like to finish uh, with uh, something that Lottie, Court's sister, actually wrote in 1971. But I can only really read a very little portion of it. It is, uh, our, it is in our book, it is the epilogue. So uh, Lottie says, 
the family, requiem for a family. The family on both sides deeply rooted for centuries in Germany, on mother's side in the Rhineland and on father's side in the kingdom of Hanover. And she goes on to retell the family story. And she, I make now huge leaps here. Um, she ends by, or she relates what happened to each one of the family members. Herself, her sister, her brother, her aunt, her mother. And then she finishes, three siblings, three continents. Our children don't know each other. In intimate, extended family life, they have never known. And they won't ever experience it, at least until the family grows to have their own children. And fate will hopefully allow for them to live in one country. Emphasis, Lottie's. God grant this. Now, even though Lottie's wish for the family to live in one country was not granted, uh, it is remarkable to see that all of Selma, Alex, and Henny's descendants have wonderful and growing families of their own. Their three children, Kurt, Mayana, and Lottie, had six children, and they again have 11 children who are now in their 20s and 30s. And here we are, Rebecca and myself, in Essen, in October, when the family I couldn't even say reunited, but because they never had a reunion before, they united for the first time on occasion of the publication of the book. They decided they should all be together. So there are um, the family members, and the picture is taken in front of what used to be the Kaufmann store, where you saw the Nazi parade, and you also saw this. Selma standing with the two children at her hands. So this building was destroyed, and uh, so this is, but it was their house. And what you see in front of us, there are two kind of cobblestones. Those two stones are called stumbling stones, and they were put there in memory of Selma and Henny by the city of Essen, by the town of Essen. And uh, it mentions their names, their birth dates, and uh, their deportation dates. And this is an installation that is all over through Germany now and also in, in Austria. So people get um, now commemorated uh, with these uh, stones in the sidewalk. And with that, I would like to thank Judy Cooper and also our wonderful interpreters. And I just want you to know, they did not see our manuscript before. They did not see what we wanted. And I'm deeply moved uh, about uh, this wonderful translation. Thank you so much. And thank you for all for coming.